Indeed, we serve a great God who humbles himself to, to dwell with us, uh, who in our sin and, and according to our own ways were orphans, we were vulnerable, we were defenseless, we were guilty. And uh, God has come to us through Jesus to love us and to save us. And so this morning as we continue our series that we're calling You Are, looking at the various places, especially in the New Testament, where God describes us. Um, we are looking this morning at Galatians chapter 3. If you want to turn there, please. And uh, we're going to look at the last part of chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 23 uh, through 29. So please give your attention to God's Word. So now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned, until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Let me pray for us. Lord, we give you thanks for the promise, the promise of the gospel, that through faith in Jesus, we might become your adopted sons and daughters and have an inheritance and become one in Him. So we pray that you would help our hearts to rejoice in this truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, as we look at this statement that you are all sons of God through faith, through faith in, in Christ, uh, we want to expand on that and kind of dig a little deeper on what that means. And so we're going to talk about being justified by faith. We're going to talk about being sons of God. We're going to talk about our inheritance. You know, a, a child, a son, or a daughter generally has an inheritance, right? So let's begin by talking, as Paul does, about the, the role of the law and uh, the commandments. We're, we're kind of picking up at the end of a discussion, actually. So uh, we don't, don't have a lot of time to... to uh, you know, examine the whole context for, for these verses in particular, but, but we, we do get a lot of help just by looking at verse 23. Paul's kind of wrapping up his discussion about the law, and he says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. We were imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Um, Paul is talking about the law's role as uh, really, this this thing that that imprisons us, it it accuses us, it condemns us. Not because it doesn't like us. It does. It's not because it's unfriendly toward us. It's not because it's like, uh, you know, um, something that that wouldn't be an ally for us. But instead, it's just telling the truth about us. The law tells the truth about us. And it basically says, look, if you're going to have a relationship with God as a son or as a daughter. The law is not the way to accomplish that. Uh, Jesus had told a parable about this, uh, you know, this, this kind of fool's effort of becoming 
uh, intimate with God, accepted by God, approved by God based on the law. And, and, he, and he told the parable of the prodigal son. You remember that one, most of you probably. But it's really the parable, parable of the prodigal sons or the prodigal brothers. And you know how it begins. The, the younger son, he's insolent, he's rebellious, he's, he, want, he demands his share of the inheritance uh, which is another kind of backhanded way of wishing his father was dead. Can't wait to get out of the house. Can't wait to get away from all of the constraints, right? All of the rules, all of the, the, you know, the, the father's you know, culture and this you know, suffocating sense that he's got. So he goes as far away as he can, far away. Squanders all of the money uh, with, you know, drugs and sex and all kinds of craziness, um, comes to the end of the money and lo and behold, the end of his friends, you know, fancy that. He's alone, he's hungry, he's homeless. Uh, all he can do is, you know, feed himself by, being, by agreeing to feed the pigs. So I want you to imagine this kid uh, from a well-off family uh, he's wasted everything, uh, he's a mess, and he's living with the pigs, feeding himself with the pig food, uh, covered in mud, covered in the things that are in the mud, which, you know, if you've been around pigs, you know what they do in the mud. That's his life. And you contrast him with his older brother, who is very diligent, very rules-oriented, you know, very um, uh, just, he's, he's the good kid. And so when this younger brother comes home and everybody welcomes him and they have this party, the older brother is out in the field and he's, you know, been doing his thing. He's been working. He's been, you know, uh, you know doing the right thing. He hears the party at the home, and he's asking what's going on. Um, he can smell the food. He can, he can hear the laughter. And he's got his servant, and his servant uh, explains that this, your, your younger brother's come home. And your father's killed the fatted calf, and, you know, we're having a party. And the older brother gets mad. Let me pick up where Jesus, you know, finishes the parable in Luke 15. Uh, Jesus says that the older brother was angry. And he refused to go in. And his father came out and treated him, pleaded with him, you know, come on, come into the party. And he answered his father, look, you know, all these many years I have served you. The NIV gets it right. I've been slaving for you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, like he won't even acknowledge it's his brother, right? When this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. What's going on? So, yeah, what is going on? What, what's going on with this older brother in his relationship with his, with his father? Did you get how he identified himself? How he described himself? He said, I've been slaving for you. I've been serving you these many years. I never disobeyed a command. What's the basis of his, you know, sonship, his rule keeping. He thinks the law exists. I mean, Jesus is giving this, this parable to show us the folly of imagining that the law exists in order for us to prove we're, we're, we're kids, we're, 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 so that we can become sons or daughters. The law doesn't exist for that. 
That's not what it's for. That's folly. That's foolish. You know, if you grew up in a family where, you know, your, your, your family worked in this sort of token economy where, uh, you know, you got fed or you got attention or you got affection because, um, you know, you got good grades in school or because you had good behavior at home or good a good performance on the stage or, you know, good results on the field or on the court, if that's what got you attention and affection, that was a messed up mess of a messy family. And I'm sorry. That's not the way that love and attention and affection are supposed to operate, this token economy. But that's the mistake the older brother's making, imagining that, that keeping the law and keeping the rules are what are going to earn the father's you know, affection and attention. I've been keeping all these rules. You didn't you know, throw me a party. As if, if I keep enough rules, that's what's going to get me the party. And the father says, no, 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 I've, I've loved you all along. And you know, more, more about that later. But we think we can prove ourselves to be children of God by you know, keeping all of the commandments. But that's not the way the law works. All the laws, you know, doing, not again because it's unfriendly toward us, but because it actually is telling us the truth about ourselves. We do fall short. The law's role as um, this, this guard, this, this keeper, uh, even imprisoning us. You know, this older brother is in a prison of his own making. He looks at the law as this means by which he's going to try to get his father's attention and affection. He can't do it. And it's a prison that he feels like he's in. So I like how John Stott uh, summarizes it. He said, not until the law has arrested and imprisoned us will we pine for Christ to set us free. Not until the law has driven us to the despair of ourselves will we ever believe in Jesus. Not until the law has humbled us, even to hell, will we turn to the gospel to raise us to heaven. Earlier in chapter 3, if you've got Galatians open, Galatians 3 still open, look at verse 10. Earlier in Paul's discussion about the law, he said, All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it's written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Uh, you know, the law doesn't take it personal. It's just demanding perfection. It doesn't have it out for you. It just shows you, you and I can't measure up. We don't meet that standard. So don't misuse the law in an effort to prove that you're a son or you're a daughter. That's not the law's purpose. The law's purpose is to make us look outside ourselves, to look for a redeemer, to look for somebody who's going to free us and release us from the law's sentence. So look at verse 24. We get another kind of shift in the metaphor. It's sort of similar. Paul says, that, so then the law was our tutor, our, our guardian, right? Um, not a prison guard this time, but more of like um, a, a guide until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Um, so in one sense, the law is this legal prosecutor. Now the law is compared to a legal guardian, um, a tutor who is going to train and teach uh, the, the child 
Uh, the things that that child needs to know to grow into adulthood, to be independent, to, to kind of arrive, to reach maturity. That's what a good legal guardian's going to do for somebody who's a minor or who isn't of age yet. And now the Paul, Paul says that, that's another way to look at the law. The law is leading us uh, to Christ, preparing us, maturing us, educating us to the point where we grow and, and have that moment where, oh, okay, now I get it. I, I was looking at the law as this one thing, and now I realize it's something else. It's designed to lead me to Jesus. And that maturity happens when the person moves from self-reliance to Christ-reliance. Instead of thinking, I'm going to keep all the rules, we look at Jesus who kept the rules. Instead of thinking that it's my obedience that matters, we look at Jesus' obedience that matters. Instead of my sacrifices that sort of atone for my sins, no, it's Jesus' sacrifice that atoned for my sins. So the law functions as this you know, good counsel, this tutor who's pointing us away from ourselves and constantly to Jesus, who kept the law for us, who is our substitutionary sin bearer for us. And that's when we reach maturity. That's when we are now free from the law. We've, we've grown up in Christ, and that's the place that we're, we're, we're heading. Tim Keller puts it like this, the law shows us as we really are. And so the law points us to see Christ as he really is, our Savior, the one who obeyed the law on our behalf and then died in our place so that we might receive the promised blessing. Now, what's the promised blessing? Here's what we're talking about in verse 25. This, this status of being children of God or sons of God, as Paul puts it, now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. This is the promised blessing. Now that Christ has come, we're all sons of God through faith. Um, in the next chapter of Galatians, uh, verse 4, chapter 4, he explains that when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman just like we were, fully human, fully God, born under the law, just like we were, but who kept the law in order to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So this is the grace of adoption. This is how we become sons and, and daughters of God. It's not through the rule keeping. Uh, it's not the way the older brother thought he was going to prove his you know, sonship or whatever. Every Christian, every, every person who, who prays as Jesus taught us to pray, our Father who art in heaven, every Christian is adopted. This is the grace of God to us, to draw us into his family. We who were not members of his family left to ourselves. We who were far off in, in darkness, in our sins, dead in our trespasses, all of those descriptions throughout the Bible of, of who we are left to ourselves because of the sin nature, because of the fall, because of you know, just being a part of the, the other kingdom, God rescues us and brings us into his kingdom. One vision, one way to look at that, one perspective on that is, is the grace and the beauty of adoption. So how 
do we receive this grace? How do we get in on this promise? Uh, John puts it this way in his gospel. To all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Uh, so, you know, what does it mean to believe that God is our Father, to believe in his name? How do we, we we're supposed to call him Father? It means that I'm, I'm trusting in him. I'm looking to him to love me, to care for me, to protect me, to deliver me, to redeem me, to save me. And again, we're just talking about this fundamental posture of switching my reliance from myself to another, to looking to Jesus, to, to looking to my Father in heaven, to, to trust him, to call him Father. It takes a remarkable switch. You know, there's this beauty, this moment that happens um, and in, in sometimes like in foster families where the child has been being fostered, but then the, the child gets adopted by the foster parents, there's a point in which, you know, you have to have a discussion. Well, no, now what are we going to call the, the adults in this equation? But pre previously, this was somebody else's son, somebody else's daughter. But now there's a switch, there's a change, and that child now calls the foster parents mom and dad. There's a shift in, in, in perspective. There's a shift in orientation. There's a shift in the relationship. The father and the mother have, have pursued this child and agreed to care for this child and have endeavored to love this child, and they are making, you know, initiating the grace, and the child responds, Mommy, Daddy. And that's this beautiful bond that, that can happen. So we, we experience the same thing. When you start to realize that I have a father in heaven who loved me and gave his son to redeem me and to rescue me and to give me this status and this promise and all these gifts and these graces that I didn't earn, uh, they're not about my obedience, they're not about my self-reliance, they're just about his love for me. And he's my father and he loves me and I love him too. That's what faith looks like. That's what it looks like to believe on his name, to receive him. And if you haven't done that yet, you need to do that. That's how you're adopted. Not by working hard to prove yourself adopted, not by being the older brother and being mad at everybody else because, you know, I don't get this grace thing. The gospel is this radically good news. This is incredibly good news that God has loved us and brought us into his family through the obedience and sacrifice of Jesus. Not through our obedience and not through our sacrifice. That's what was so upsetting to the older brother. And that's why this same radically good news can be so radically frustrating and offensive to many people. What do you, what do you, what do you mean, you know, it's not about my good works and my church going and my giving and all these good things that I'm doing? Come on, don't you know how hard I'm working? That's deeply offensive to them. Because, yeah, the answer is no, it's not about your good works. It's about Jesus' good works and his, his love for you. And the gospel also declares this radical message that God loves us regardless of, you know, the, the good works or the bad works or, you know, this or that. Or the, and this is why Paul says in verse 28 that, that because we're sons of God, because we're sons and daughters of our Father in heaven, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male or female, you're all one in Christ Jesus. You know, this is the other you are statement in this passage. Um, you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is a message that's deeply offensive to those in power, to those who have privilege. It makes them cringe. 
challenge. What do you mean I'm one with these people, these inferiors, right? Paul's culture was deeply prejudiced, deeply patronizing, deeply patriarchal, right? So there is even a prayer that, that faithful um, uh, religious uh, Jewish people would pray from the Talmud where every day they would thank God for not making me a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. You see the connection in verse 28? Paul's addressing these three categories that were prevalent culturally. And, you know, um, I don't know that things have changed a whole lot. It's been 2,000 years, and we still live in this culture, this world where people's worth seems to be based on their nationality or their skin color or what's in their bank account or whether they're male or female or whatever. But God is not a racist. God is not an elitist. He's not a misogynist, right? So we worship the one who has brought us into his family, and everybody who puts their faith in Jesus is, are his kids, and he loves us the same. I want to introduce you to this family uh, who I was reading about this week. This is R Ricardo and Kia Jones Baldwin. And they're a, they're a beautiful family from what I've read. And they've got uh, four kids. All, um, all, all the kids kind of have their own unique story. Uh, so uh, Zariah, who is the second from the left, she is uh, Kia's biological daughter. You know, Kia's black, Zariah's black. And then Kia and Ricardo got married, and they fostered a bunch of kids. And two of, their, uh, the, of the children that they fostered, they ended up adopting, and that's Carly and Aiden. Uh, Carly's on the left, and Aiden's in the middle. Uh, and they're biracial, right? But the one I want to talk to you about is, in, is, is Princeton. They're, they're two-year-old, at least at the time of this, this picture. Um, they've adopted, or they fostered a bunch of children, and many of the foster children that they've had in their home went on to be reunited with their biological families, which is great. It's a good, good ending to a foster story. Um, but one day, Kia got a phone call from their um, social worker and said, hey, there's a baby in the NICU uh, who needs a foster family, uh, and needs skin-on-skin -skin care, two-pound little baby. And one of the ways that you know, they'll, they'll try to care for these children in the NICU is to just to provide skin-on-skin you know, -skin time, like, like a, a mommy you know, caring for, for their baby. So Kia shows up at the hospital, goes into the neonatal intensive care unit, and is looking around at, at all of the, the incubators uh, and um, just looking for the, oh, you know, the black or the brown baby that she's going to get paired with. And they said, oh, no, no, your baby's over here, this, this little one over here, this little two-pound shriveled-up little white baby. And she thought, Those, they're mess somebody's telling a joke. That, I can't, I'm a black woman. You, you want me to foster a white kid? And they said, yeah, this child needs a foster family. And she said, okay. You know, maternal instincts, you know, kicked in. Give me that baby. And uh, so she's, she's, she's cradling that child, you know, on her chest. Uh, the, the child's name is Princeton. Princeton, you know, starts gaining weight. He gets healthier, and uh, he's out of the, uh, the NICU, and he's in a regular room, and soon enough, he goes home to this family, to his foster family. And they, up, they end up adopting Princeton. Beautiful story, right? We love this. 
Kia says, that's when things got hard. It didn't matter to us that he was white, but boy, did it matter to others. And she tells about how we had the police called on us several times when he was an infant because people thought we'd kidnapped him. And how once in the grocery store, when Princeton was sitting in the shopping cart, an older white gentleman, she uses the word gentleman, but I got to kind of put a question mark by that description because this guy came up to us and started recording and taking pictures on his phone. And I asked him, what is he doing? And asked him to stop immediately. And he explained to me that he was going to take this evidence to security because I'd obviously taken somebody's baby. And it just goes on. Like we faced judgment from our children's teachers. They asked our daughters if he was really their brother. I must be the babysitter or something. And they've heard like, why didn't you adopt a black child when there's so many black children need good homes? And why didn't you let that baby stay with his kind? You know, all that stuff. And they've been in restaurants. She said, nearly held hostage and not let out the door because they thought Princeton was kidnapped. So all of those, she, she wraps up, you know, in this blog, she says all of these types of incidents were very hurtful, as you can imagine. But not once in my mind or heart did I feel as if Princeton didn't belong to me, his adoptive mother. I will always choose him and find beauty in our life together with this beautiful you know, mosaic of a family. And I'm just sharing this story because Kia's heart this family's heart is a, is, a, is a fantastic reflection of God's heart. No matter what painful things that you and I do or painful things that have been done to us, God will never think or feel like we don't belong to him, right? Your sonship, your daughtership isn't based on you keeping the rules. You're not the older brother in Jesus' parable. You know what it's based on? It's his love for you. That's why you're his son. That's why you're his daughter. And God will never think or feel like we don't belong to him. And our heavenly father will always choose us, just like Key was saying. He will always find the beauty in our collective union with him. Jesus loves us. It doesn't matter if you're red or yellow, black or white, orange or purple, polka dot. Jesus loves the little children of the world. You know, like he, he loves you. And it doesn't matter, you know, whether you're American or Mexican. And it doesn't matter if you're Russian or Indian. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you've got a past or it doesn't matter if you've got a pedigree. It doesn't matter. What matters is Jesus and your union with him. That's what matters. He loves us all the same and places us in the same family, his church, where he doesn't play favorites. He loves you. And he's made you an heir according to the promise. Look at verse 29. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. You're part of this family. Heirs according to the promise. Um, what does it mean to have an inheritance? 
If you're a son or a daughter, you have an inheritance. You have a very, very wealthy father, I might add, and you have an incredible inheritance. How do you get an inheritance? I'll tell you how you don't get an inheritance. This guy who came up to Jesus and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life, right? Like, well, who does anything to inherit eternal life? You don't do anything. What's the difference between a paycheck and an inheritance? Well, you, you do stuff to get a paycheck. You're just part of the family and you get an inheritance. You're part of the family, you have an inheritance. Inheritance is something that we receive, not something that we earn. And because of what Jesus has done, because we're united to him, the inheritance that he has as God's son is ours, right? If you're united to Jesus, what's his is ours. Paul says exactly that in 1 Corinthians 1. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. And that's why Jesus would say, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who are in my kingdom. You will inherit the earth. That's your inheritance. All things, heaven and earth, everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to us. Being united to Christ means that God sees us and relates to us the way that he relates to his son. We haven't earned this. It's given to us. You know, this, the, remember the prodigal sons, prodigal brothers. So the older brother, you know, wants to relate to his father on the basis of his obedience, on the basis of the law, basically. The younger brother kind of does the same thing. Like he wants to relate to his father on the basis of, of, of the law, but he's relating on the basis of his disobedience. Like he's rehearsed this speech in his head when he's covered in pig pee and pig poop and mud and everything, hungry, desperate, and he's thinking to himself, you know what, I bet at home I can, I, I can still feed the pigs, but at least I won't have to eat what the pigs are eating. And I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll go back to my father and I'll say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I don't deserve to be called your son. Just make me like a slave. Because that was his concept of fatherhood. It was rules-based, and he broke the rules. And he didn't deserve to be a son anymore. He's a slave. And he's got this speech rehearsed, and he's making his long way back to the, the family estate and he kind of gets within eyesight of, you know, the house and the mansion or whatever it is. You get the impression this guy's got some money. Um, and he sees this person running toward him and he's thinking, oh no. Here comes my condemnation. Here, here comes whoever the servant is to tell me, I'm not welcome here and I need to get that you know what out. And you can almost see him kind of like, cringing and recoiling as, as the person gets closer and then he realizes that's not a servant. That's my dad. Running to him. Hiking up, you know, the, the hem of his whatever, his robes and so on. Like the noble men don't run. He's never seen his father run all his life and he's running toward him. And before he can get his speech out, Father, I've sinned against heaven against you. I don't just, you know, none of that. Just the father just smothers him with hugs and kisses, puts a robe on him, a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, kills the fatted cat. We're having a party because I love you. 
my relationship with you is not based on your obedience or your disobedience. You have an inheritance. This is the Father's love for us, making us his sons and his daughters, making us heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, as Paul says in Romans 8. Do you know your Father in heaven? Are you his not because of your obedience? Are you not his because of your disobedience? Are you his son or his daughter because you've been adopted? Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks and praise for your great grace to us. When we were uh, defenseless and vulnerable and guilty and condemned and suffering and lost and uh, without God, without hope in the world, you came to us and you loved us and you adopted us. And you did that through Jesus who would suffer for us, who would rise for us, who would be united to us. And we pray that you would grow our faith and help us to to appreciate all the more uh, this great love for us, that we would be called children of God. Lord, will you pray uh, for those who um, are here, who feel fatherless, who struggle to know your love? Lord, would you remind us of your, your care and your attention? Uh, would you forgive our sins? Would you forgive our wrong view of our obedience? And would you give us greater faith and greater trust in you? Lord, on this Orphan Sunday, we are mindful of uh, the fatherless. Uh, we are mindful of... Uh, vulnerable children.